So welcome everyone. In whatever way you're appearing in this moment, you're welcome. I'll just check that the sound is adequate. Yeah, anyone finding it difficult? I'd like to, uh, this evening, continue unfolding the, these teachings of, of metta, of this boundless quality, boundless heart. And as I do so, just also with a lot of appreciation for each, each of you. Yeah. It's not necessarily an easy journey, certainly not all the time. And so sometimes it can be uh, very beautiful to just acknowledge you know, that every person here is going through a journey yeah. and that we might not know very much about them at all but we can be certain that they know moments of joy and moments of challenge. Probably even in the last couple of hours. <laughs> yeah. That's part of our humanity and it can be a beautiful aspect of our, of our humanity when we remember that commonality. So this is another way we can say of practicing metta, just this remembering and bringing metta in as a way of relating to our experience. Yeah. We notice our what's going on in this body, heart, mind and how does that connect me to others? How does it connect others to this sense of me? And so metta as a way of relating, yeah, as a way of relating to our experience that leads to well-being, leads to wakefulness, to ease. A few people said today how much they like that word, ease. And metta is a way of relating that leads to well-being in the immediacy of this moment. Even if it's just a tiny little bit <laughs> of well-being, yeah, of having some space with an experience or around an experience, and also over time. And so I'd like to, at this point, remind us again that metta is not only yeah, that formal practice that we're doing here with the phrases and the beings. It's not just that. Remembering the metta metta. M-E-T-A, M-E-T-T-A. That big picture of looking at what's appropriate right now might not be that practice. What's appropriate? And also, if it is the formal metta practice, how to practice it? What's appropriate right now? 
So I want to read a very short bit, which is actually <laughs> the Buddha's metta instructions as they appear in the Buddha's suttas. And um, as an instruction, this is how they appear. Okay. And so he's describing the practitioner as they practice metta. And he says, she keeps pervading, gender changes mine. She keeps pervading the first direction yeah, with an awareness imbued with metta. Likewise, the second direction. Likewise, the third. Likewise, the fourth. Thus, above, below, and all around, everywhere, in its entirety, she keeps pervading the entire cosmos with an awareness imbued with metta. Abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That's probably enough for tonight. <laughs> really a hard act to follow. I'll just read it again. I'll do he this time, or let's do they. They keep pervading the first direction with an awareness imbued with metta. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. Thus above, below, and all around, everywhere, in its entirety, they keep pervading the entire cosmos with an awareness imbued with metta. Abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. I wanted to, to read that, to share that near the beginning. Uh, I really want us to have this in our awareness uh, as we reflect on meta practice this evening. And so one um, thing that I, I kind of would love for you to take from this practice, from these teachings, is the sense of how much they open possibilities, how much this practice opens possibilities, and how much it supports insight. Yeah, supports insight. And the particular insight that, I, that we've been speaking of since the opening talk, yeah, that insight that when there's perception, when there's an experience, there's an object, and there's a way of relating. And these create the experience together. Yeah. Bring the experience together. So our experience and our perception is not neutral and it's not objective. And I know I've said it already, but I need to hear it again. <laughs> I keep saying it to other people because we keep going down this route of our habit of seeing experience, of seeing perception as neutral and as objective. This is real. This is the way it is. 
but it's not neutral and it's not objective. Every moment of experience is shaped by the mind. Shaped by the mind. So, another Buddha quote. I'm afraid there may be quite a few. Bear with me. This is, these are the opening lines of the Dhammapada, um, which is a kind of text of short, uh, kind of poetic sayings attributed to the Buddha. And so this is how they open. Phenomena, which is to say appearance, experience. Phenomena are preceded by the heart. And the Pali word here is citta, which means heart-mind. But this translator, Tanisra Bhikkhu, he decided to translate, he chose to translate heart. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, then suffering follows you as the wheel of the cart follows the ox that pulls it. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a calm, bright heart, then happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves. So this speaks so beautifully to this relationship between experience and the heart and mind. The state of the mind, the state of the heart, shapes our experience and is directly related to the well-being or the ill-being that we may experience. Caveat here. (laughs) This does not mean that if there's dukkha, if there's ill-being, if there's suffering in your life, it's your fault. Really important to make this caveat. That does not mean that it's your fault. It doesn't mean that you're creating it. It just means that this is an invitation to see how am I relating? What's the way of relating? How is that impacting the experience? Caveat understood? Yeah? Okay, it's really important. So how, you know, how does this relate to our lives? Yeah, these beautiful teachings and you can really feel when I read them into this space, wow, it's really vibrating um, with resonance, yeah, resonance of your practice. Now I want to give an example of how this works in our experience. And this is, um, this is an example from an 11-year-old called Sita. Yeah. He's the daughter of very, very good friends of ours and kind of like our, our, our goddaughter, you can say, without any official titles. And so a few weeks ago, um, they were at our house and um, hanging out. And then she turned to her dad and said, Dad, actually she calls him Papa. Papa, can we have a dog? <laughs> Father hates dogs. He's got a serious fear of dogs. Papa, can we have a dog? 
And, you know, he said what he said, and the conversation flowed on. My partner turned to her and said, Sita, hold on, this is really important. (laughs) Aren't you afraid of dogs? She used to be terrified of dogs. Aren't you afraid of dogs? And here's what she said. She said back to him, I used to be afraid of dogs. But then I decided that it would be better if I stopped being afraid of them. And so I could see that when they come towards me, they're interested in me rather than wanting to harm me. Yeah? And then she said, and then I could see they are friendly. I'm going to repeat this. (laughs) This is as delicious as the Buddha, right? You can hear that. I used to be afraid of dogs. And then I decided that I didn't want to be afraid of them anymore. And then I could see when they approached me that they're interested in me rather than wanting to hurt me. And then I could see that they want to be my friends. What a teaching <laughs> yeah. of the pliability of the mind and the way our experience is shaped by the way we relate. Yeah. So just that sense, I am afraid of the dogs and that's not the way I want to be. Yeah. And then that brings interest. And then I can see beyond, yeah, or she can see, I'm not speaking for myself, <laughs> she can see, yeah, beyond the habit, yeah, the inherited habit from birth, dad is really afraid of dogs, I'm really afraid of dogs. Yeah. See, beyond that to something else. Ah, when they come towards me, they're not actually wanting to harm me. That was the previous experience. They're interested, and then I can even see they're friendly. So that possibility, yeah, the pliability of the mind, and the beauty, you know, often in a child's mind we can see that. Yeah, it's still so pliable, so flexible. Yeah. To go against the grain of a learnt response yeah. of 11 years with interest and with friendliness. Yeah, remember that's how we've been finding, defining meta here from the beginning. Yeah, kind interest. And very similar to... Um, that beautiful piece from um, Iris Mur- Murdoch that um, Jake read yesterday, you know, that look again, yeah? Here's how I'm seeing something. What if I look again? Yeah? And what if I include in that looking the awareness of how I'm looking? <laughs> yeah? Oh, I realize I'm looking through the eyes of a snob, and that's what she was saying, <laughs> yeah? I'm a bit critical. Uh-huh. I kind of take in, and not as a self-criticism, but just as a reality check. Oh, how is that shaping? And what if I look again? So in both those stories, there's a choice and there's an intention. Yeah? There's a moment of choice, a moment of intention to look again. 
to look again and not just to look any old way, <laughs> but to look with an intention of friendliness, you know, to look with an intention of kind interest, to look with an intention of metta. And it can be really interesting you know, when we reflect on those times that we have done similar things. Yeah? And sometimes they're so quick, they're so uh, kind of immediate that we don't even realize that's what we're doing. Yeah? But maybe we've stopped ourselves in the middle of an argument with someone, even if it was just in our head. Yeah? We've paused. We've reframed. And it's interesting to see when we reflect on that how our own experience changes as we do that. So again, if I go back to Sita, that sense of confidence, that sense of moving through the world with a sense of these are my friends rather than something that's there to harm me. So it's our experience that changes to an incredible degree. And then, of course, how we are in the world is impacted by that. So the change continues to ripple. Yeah, it continues to ripple. And this is possible for us. Yeah. doesn't matter if we're not 11 anymore. Yeah. It's possible for us. That's kind of what we're cultivating as we cultivate uh, metta, Mindfulness, insight, gatheredness, compassion, any of these qualities, that's what we're doing. We're shaping the mind towards an intentional attitude of wholesomeness, an intentional attitude of friendliness. And we're shaping the mind kind of on our cushion (laughs) or on our seat as we're practicing in our walking practice. We're shaping the mind as we move around between formal practice. And we're doing it with what arises in our experience, adapting, attending, responding. And over time, this way of relating arises more and more as the default setting of our heart and mind. I cannot cannot put into words how wonderful that is. Yeah. When we see that, oh, it's become one of the defaults where my mind gravitates to, where it goes. Yeah. That strength of habit. There's a beautiful um, story from Sharon Salzberg, um, which is actually about the first meta retreat that she ever did. <laughs> so it was right back when they, uh, they had just founded IMS, the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts in the US. And in order to inaugurate it, they decided to have a one month retreat there, all the people that had founded it, self-retreat. And she decided that she was going to do that month as a meta month. Uh, but it was the first time she was really practicing it seriously. And because she had a whole month, she uh, dedicated the first week to do self-meta, meta for herself. And she didn't think much was going on, much was happening. Yeah? So she was going through the motions, saying the phrases, wishing well for herself, but she didn't really feel much impact. 
And then at the end of that first week, she got some news which meant that she had to leave. Yeah, stop her retreat and leave the center. And she thought to herself, oh, what a shame. If I'd known I only had one week, I wouldn't have wasted it on just myself, especially since nothing's happened as a result. And as she was packing her things, um, she knocked over a glass bottle and it fell to the floor and shattered. And she heard herself saying, actually, I think out loud, not sure, but let's say, I like drama, so let's say she said it out loud. Sharon, you klutz. I love you. And she was like, what? Where did that come from? You know, the Sharon, you klutz, I know well. I know that voice well. The I love you? Where did that come from? And so that arising as we practice yeah we're changing the inclination of the mind we're changing the habits of the mind the grooves that the mind goes along and so this increasing and developing of the pliability and the flexibility of the mind yeah it gets less fixated it has more fluidity and it can be directed yeah it's both the kind of default when it arises spontaneously, but also more flexibility, more pliability, less fixed, less grooved. And we can direct it intentionally to look with metta, to look with love. And this, of course, impacts our own well-being when we can make that shift. We can make that shift. And it also supports resilience over time. Such an important quality in our world and in our beings. So we can see one aspect of metta here really clearly. Metta as a practice, a cultivation practice. When we're cultivating a wholesome way of relating to experience, we're cultivating a wholesome way to respond. And again, both as a choice and as a kind of something that just the mind goes into. And I love that word cultivation. It's uh, often described as one thread of Dharma teachings and Dharma practices, cultivation. Actually, the word that's translated as meditation, bhavana, means cultivation. That was a mistranslation that we're stuck with. (laughs) But we can shift, right? Because our minds are flexible. So we can see it's not an on-off state. It's a cultivation. It's an agricultural metaphor, right? What we're doing, we're tilling the ground, tilling the earth. We're creating supportive conditions for the wholesome to grow. We're planting seeds of goodness in our own being and in the world. It's a beautiful way of seeing this practice, a practice of cultivation. 
Metta is also a practice of samadhi. It's another thread of Dharma teachings. Samadhi coming together on the particular, often translated as concentration. Forget that I said that. <laughs> Harmonization. Yeah. A gatheredness, a harmonizing into well-being, harmonizing of the body, heart and mind coming together in well-being, in unification. And, and sometimes you may have already had a flavor of that as you've been practicing. Yeah, when the metta's really um, going. Robert Bear mentioned him, I think, yesterday. He used to say, when the metta's humming, <laughs> that sense of like it's really humming along, it's really going. Yeah. There's that sense of, of that unification. Yeah, we get that sense of the harmonization and that uh, has a really precious flavor of well-being to it. So metta is a practice of cultivation, the practice of samadhi, and it's also a practice of insight. Mm. And so it, 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 it does the whole job <laughs> for us, or it can do, covers the whole field of practices. And that's part of why it is such, um, what did the Buddha call it? Abundant, <coughs> immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. It's so vast, yeah? so vast and so precious. So again, that insight, and I want to go into that more. How does metta reveal insight? How does it support insight? And what insights does it reveal? So that insight of seeing that experience is shaped, put together, fabricated, made up of parts, made up of conditions. Yeah that experience is dependent on the heart and mind and on the way of relating. The insight that our experience is not fixed, yeah. not fixed, not separate, not independent yeah. in the way that we take it to be. Yeah. It's changing. It's dependent on causes and conditions. It's fluid. Does that make sense to people? It's an important insight. Yeah. Metta practice also reveals to us the insight that dukkha and sukha, yeah, well-being and ill-being, are not in the object. Yeah. So dukkha, ill-being, stress, suffering. Yeah. And sukha, it's opposite, happiness well-being. They're not in the object, they're in the way of relating. Yeah, they're not in the thing, they're not in the mood, they're not in the body pain. Yeah. They're not in that. Yeah. They're in the way in re of relating. It doesn't mean that the body pain doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pain is painful. Yeah. But the suffering, yeah, is in the way of relating, in the pushing away. So there can be pain in the body, and some people here have experienced that even today, with less sense of problematic. 
with less sense of distress. Yeah. It can be difficult appearances in our lives, yeah. our own or our global lives. Yeah. And it's not just in the object, it's in how we are relating to it. That shape if it leads to ill-being or well-being. And we could really um, hear it today when um, Jake was quoting, uh, reading from Joseph Goldstein about the neutral person. You remember that? <laughs> we think someone is neutral. Yeah? We think someone is neutral. We think, oh, they, you know, that's the way they are, right? They're just a neutral person. That's their quality to us. And then we start practicing metta towards them. Yeah. And it changes. Yeah. It changes. And suddenly, as Joseph was describing, there's this great sense of warmth and care and connection to somebody. Yeah. And suddenly there's friendliness yeah, and care. So the person from their own side has not changed. A change has been in how we are relating. And I, yeah, I've, 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 I really advise, <laughs> recommend doing this practice. It's, it's quite fantastic. Um, and I've, I've had many funny experiences with it myself and also from other people. I remember someone telling me once that they had been practicing on retreat and the neutral person was some friend of a friend of a friend. Someone that they saw occasionally, but they had no relationship with. The next time they, they met them after this retreat, they greeted them as if, you know, long lost buddy. <laughs> hey, I'm so happy to see you. And the other person's looking at them and thinking, what the? What's happened to you? You know. So, yeah. <laughs> Very funny when it happens. And usually people kind of deal with it pretty well after some time. So this insight, yeah, seeing uh, how I relate to someone is changeable, it's impactable. That I have choice, we have choice, we have possibilities. How we relate shapes experience, yeah? And it shapes the world. Really can be, you know, I love playing with perception, in case it wasn't clear. <laughs> it's really a way of playing with our perception and changing the world as we do so. So another example. Um, a couple of years ago, um, my partner and I went to Israel to visit my family for six weeks. Uh, we traveled on, I think it was the 8th of March, two years ago. <laughs> Remember what happened around then? So we, we arrived in Israel uh, the day after they had said that everyone who arrived need, needed to go into two weeks of isolation, which we did. And while when we were in isolation, the whole world went into lockdown. Uh, we ended up staying for 14 months. Um, and this is one of the things we did when we were there. So Jake's been saying a few times about him being quite an urban person. I'm not and my partner, even less than me, grew up in West Dorset, um, <laughs> really not urban. My mum, where we were, my mum's house, flat, where we were living for 14 months, is super urban. Yeah, 
very urban, in the middle of a city, 10th floor, um, very urban. And in Israel, I have to take a while to see how to phrase it, patience is not a very common quality. (laughs) So if you're standing at the traffic lights, as soon as they're about to go green, someone behind you is honking. And if you're on the 10th floor of an apartment block in the middle of an urban environment and past the initial lockdowns when there were no cars on the road, you hear a lot of honking. Yeah, hear a lot of honking all day. So my partner, Nathan, he he decided at some point that he was going to hear the honks as an expression of love. (laughs) So every time there was a honk, it's someone saying, I love you. And we both started to play with that. And it was easier to do when we were up in the flat, less easy to do when you're actually in a car, (laughs) someone's honking at you. But it just became a way of seeing. And sometimes I tell this story, and if people are not on silent retreat, they say to me, but they didn't mean that. (laughs) You know, I know. But it doesn't stop us from seeing it that way. We can't change it anyway. Yeah, they're in their car, we're in our car. We can't change it, but we can change the experience. Yeah? And so soon enough, and still it's like that, yeah, um, we would hear a honk and we would start smiling. <laughs> yeah? Because we trained our mind to see it that way. It doesn't take a lot. Yeah? And sometimes we'd be sitting in the car and there'd be a honk, whether it was one of us or both of us, and we'd just shout back. We love you too. <laughs> yeah. It's great. No one can hear you, but you can do it. Yeah. And this keeps going. Yeah. It's funny because I've told this story a lot over the pandemic. Some of you have heard it. And when we came back to the UK and came back to teaching online from the UK, a few people actually said to me, oh, you know, I really miss hearing the car honks from when you were in Tel Aviv because they could hear them through the screen. And they also had kind of gotten into this, ah, the car honk, that's an I love you. And we can just see that way. And so, you know, as I said, this was an ongoing practice for quite a long time. Then we came back to England. We're here a few weeks. We went back, uh, a few months, sorry. We went back for a visit in the autumn. Yeah. And then you need to kind of reignite the practice because the honks start being a little bit annoying. But it happens very quickly. And one of the greatest kind of moments I had was, um, and Jake reminded me of this yesterday, I was driving, I was alone, I was driving. I think I was late to a medical appointment, which really stressed me out. And I said, Israeli drivers, typically, generally, not patient. Someone cut me off, you know, just like he was saying yesterday. And the first thing is like, and then it was like, no, I've got another choice, yeah? And I just was like, take it, you know? Please, have it. I want you to have it, yeah? And this is an, a, kind of, a, a kind of expansion of that honking practice of just feeling I don't need to feel like something has been taken away from me. I can actually choose to give it, yeah? Because again, I can't change the situation anyway externally, but I can change it in here. And that means so much, because then when I arrive, 
where I'm going. I'm less agitated. I'm in a generous frame of mind. So it continues to impact my day and the day of others that I meet. Yeah. So that movement that we can make through how we relate, yeah, how we choose intentionally to perceive, yeah, something that we're cultivating when we do the practice and we can bring it into our lives. Yeah. And that shift from a sense of disconnection to connection, from separation to friendship, yeah, from animosity to love. Isn't that what we want in our lives? Isn't that part, a big part of why we're practicing? So, so often we look for these things externally. Yeah? We look for the love out there. We look for the well-being out there. We look for the generosity out there. But it's in here. Yeah? It's in here. This is where we experience it. And this is where we can bring it forth into the world. Yeah. Again and again and again. Yeah. Another um, meaning of bhavana, that word for um, meditation, is bringing into being. <laughs> yeah. Bringing into being. Well, giving birth yeah, to what is precious to us over and over. So we can do that um, where in places where naturally there's that flow, like we have been doing. We can bring that to ourselves. Yeah, and we can bring that to what challenges us. Yeah. And Jake was you know, joking about our different ways of talking about this. You know, the difficult person or the challenging relationship. When we were talking about it the other day. I said to him, you know, I'm pretty sure when I started practicing, uh, the talk was, the language was the enemy. Wow. <laughs> you know, the enemy. Yeah. And so we can start to see also yeah, how we shape our experience through the language we use. Yeah. Words have a real impact. Yeah. So how does it shape? And then what words do we choose to use yeah, that are attuned? Yeah to our intention, to what matters to us. So I wanted to say <laughs> a little bit about why I call it the challenging relationship. There's many reasons. I'll just touch on some. Yeah? When we call something a challenging relationship, we're not fixing an identity. Yeah? Not in here and not out there. Yeah? The enemy, we can feel that, what that makes. Challenging relationship. And actually, if we were really skillful, we would also say the easy relationship yeah, and the neutral relationship. Yeah. Because it's always a relationship. It's not anything essential in that other being or in this being. It's always a relationship. It's also a reminder that what we're focusing on is the relationship rather than the being. Yeah? What we're interested in, ah, what's going on in the relationship? Yeah? That's what matters. Not trying to define if that person is good or bad, right or wrong. What's going on in the relationship? It's a reminder that no one, including ourselves, 
is a certain way. <laughs> no one and no thing are a certain way all the time. Yeah, and in that essence. Yeah. No one. And that's what metta practice reminds us of again and again. Yeah. And sometimes the challenging relationship is with someone we love dearly. Right? We know that. Yeah. Sometimes the challenging relationship is with ourselves. Yeah. That's, that's where the challenge is. So we include, yeah, we include the challenging amongst all the possibilities and we practice working with it yeah in ways that see that respect that and transform that and we do this in small ways in immediate ways in how we attend to you know discomfort in the body yeah an unhelpful pattern of thinking yeah someone who just slightly rubs us the wrong way. Yeah. We do it in small ways, and we also do it in big ways. Yeah. Over and over, again and again, we're cultivating that way of relating, that way of looking, that wants to see, yeah, as Jake was saying, beyond the one dimension, that wants to see the depth, that wants to see the possibility, that wants to see the intricacy, of experience, including the human experience. And as we do that, we're also opening to our potential. Yeah. Again and again, opening to our potential, which is vast. Yeah. Which is vast. Yeah, I've got Kuan Yin and the Buddha here behind us, behind me, in front of you. Lucky, lucky you. You can look at them. Yeah. And they're there to remind us of our potential, which is vast. Potential for compassion, the potential for wisdom, potential for awakening, the potential for transformation. It's all here in our humanity, in whatever way that humanity shows itself. I recently um, saw a short interview with a great, a great bodhisattva, an amazing human being called Bassam Aramin. He's a Palestinian man, about my age, grew up very close to each other um, in Jerusalem. Um, he's been one of my heroes for a long time. I've never actually met him in person. And quite some time ago, it must be about, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, his daughter, who was, I think, about 13 at the time, was walking home from school. And she was shot uh, by Israeli soldiers and died um, two days later. And he has dedicated his, his life since her death um, to work for peace. Yeah. He's very, very courageous. And in this short interview that I saw with him, 
he said, um, and he's, he's said, he's kind of expressed this message many times. He said to the Israeli soldiers who shot and killed my daughter, when you are ready, I'm here, ready to forgive you. When you are ready, I am here, ready to forgive you. And then the person uh, interviewing him asks him, how can you say that? How, how, how do you get there? How, what? And he says, I have five other children. I have five other children. And when I offer forgiveness, I do it for myself. And I do it for my children. So that their future may be different. Can we feel the power of that? That's our potential. Yeah, Basama Amin is our potential. To understand that what we seek is in here. Yeah. And that we have the capacity, yeah. boundless, boundless capacity to grow and to transform not only ourselves but others because when we hear him, we are transformed. Yeah. Right in this moment, deeply touched and awakened to possibility. Even if it feels right now, we have no idea how we get there. (laughs) But he's like a a lighthouse saying it's possible. So this is the boundlessness of metta. There's the beautiful, another beautiful quote from the Dhammapada. Where the Buddha says, hatred isn't stilled by hatred, but by non-hatred alone is hatred stilled. Hatred isn't stilled, isn't stopped by hatred, but by non-hatred alone is hatred stilled. Yeah. And that's what Basam and many, many others like him. Yeah. That's the message and that's the truth. Yeah. And this is this understanding is what gives them power and courage. And so when we reflect on our own experience, yeah, we know the experience of non hatred, of non enmity. Yeah. We know what that feels like in the body, in the heart and in the mind, don't we? We know what it feels like. And when we reflect on our own experience, we also know what the experience of hatred feels like in the body, heart and mind. We know each of those. Hatred, ill will. We know each of those. We know what they feel like and we know what they lead to. What they lead towards. And we know also in our own experience that dukkha, that ill-being, that unhappiness arises with 
contraction, yeah, with a sense of contractedness, with friction, with grasping. Jake was speaking last night with this push and pull on experience, a demand for things to be my way, and a limited, constricted, and narrow sense of self. This, (laughs) for me, my way, narrow and limited. So we know what dukkha feels like. We know what is there when it arises. That ill-being, that suffering, that stress. And we also know the opposite, adukkha, the opposite of dukkha. Well-being arises with the lack of those same qualities. Yeah? It arises with spaciousness rather than contraction. Yeah? With ease rather than friction and grasping with non-demand rather than demand, with friendliness rather than ill will, and with an expansive sense of who and what we are, with that sense of our potential, not that narrow, restricted, for me. And so we can feel then that metta is adukkha, the opposite of, right? in its intention and when it manifests in us. We can feel the spaciousness. We can feel the non-demand. We can feel the non-ill will. And remembering metta as the whole spectrum. From that deep sense of benevolence to the non-enmity, non-ill will that the Buddha is speaking of. Yeah, that whole spectrum. So we can choose to choose metta. Yeah. We can choose to choose metta over and over again, to choose goodwill, to choose kindness, to choose friendliness, to choose non-enmity. Yeah. Over and over again, it's a choice we can make. And of course, we won't make it all the time, and that's okay. We're learning, yeah? We're cultivating, we're developing. But just knowing that we have that possibility to choose goodwill, yeah? to choose friendliness towards ourselves and our own experience, to those, towards those we love, to, towards those we don't know, and towards those that we may have a challenging relationship with, and to and towards all beings it's not always easy yeah as we know <laughs> sometimes we come in a meta retreat and we think ah oh, it's just going to be bliss boundless heart of meta i'm just going to be floating there and then it's ah there's some quite a lot of uphill <laughs> struggle there right it's quite a lot of work but we know where we're heading yeah and it's so helpful to remember that we're putting in the work. Mm-hmm. So it's not always easy and it takes commitment and it takes dedication and it takes devotion. And it takes going at our own appropriate pace. Yeah. What's appropriate for me right now? Yeah. What's appropriate for me right now? 
but it's so worth it. So worth it. For our own well-being. And for our children, when I say our children, all the children in the world, those born and those to be born. And for this whole world that we share. What better thing to do with a human life? Tell me if you find it. So let's have a quiet moment together to bring this to a close. May our practice nourish the seeds of friendliness, goodwill, compassion and wisdom in our own hearts and in the world. And may the practice that we share together be for the benefit and the welfare of all beings in all directions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.